0: everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I am your host, Karen Litzy, and today's episode is brought to you by NetHealth. So did you ever wonder how prospective patients view you when your practice comes up online? Well, on Tuesday, March 16th, which is tomorrow, as part of NetHealth's three-part mini webinar series, they'll be discussing how to financially recover from 2020 with digital marketing. And after 2020, you're going to want to sign up for this. You're going to hear from a panel of guests that have over 25 years of combined experience working in the healthcare industry, helping private practices polish their online reputation. Head over to nethealth.com slash litzy to sign up. And as a bonus, if you put litzy, that's L-I-T-Z-Y, in the comments section on the registration page and you sign up and show up, we've arranged for NetHealth to buy lunch for your office. Not bad for 29 minutes of your attention. Once again, that's nethealth.com forward slash L-I-T-Z-Y, so make sure you go over and sign up now. We'll also have a link in the show notes from this episode. All right, so on to today's episode. Continuing the month of focusing on runners and running injuries, I am so excited to have my friend Tom Goom. Back on the program, Tom is a physiotherapist and international speaker with a passion for running injury management. He has gained a worldwide audience with his website, running-physio.com, and has become known as the running physio as a result. Tom remains an active clinician committed to providing high-quality, evidence-based care. So today, uh, we talk about a subject that I don't think is talked about all that much in running circles, and that is talking about persistent pain in our athletes and runners. Tom talks about the bigger picture on persistent pain and its other connections, differentiating this persistent pain versus a series of acute flare-ups where we should focus the treatment, and navigating injured runners and athletes to their sport and many more. So the big key takeaways is we we must not lose sight of the bigger picture, Gritting your teeth and pushing through isn't always the right answer, and try and see if you can recognize when you're looking at a more persistent pain state and try to really get to know the person and the bigger picture and what is driving it all. So a huge thank you to Tom for coming on the podcast, and also make sure you sign up for our live webinar at the end of this month with all of the guests from this month. So that's Tom Goom, Ellie Summers, Julie Weeb, Chris Johnson, all together on one virtual stage. So to sign up for the Running uh, Injuries live roundtable talk, you can go into the show notes at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com and sign up. Make sure you do it today because space is limited. So everyone, thanks for listening. And again, thanks to Tom for a great episode. Hey, Tom, welcome back to the podcast. I'm excited to have you on today.
1: Thanks for having me back. Yeah, I really enjoyed it last time. We, we talked proximal hamstring, didn't we, last time? It was uh, a, good, a good chat.
0: We did. And now this time, uh, you are part of the month of March. And this month, we're talking all about running injuries and running rehab. Uh, so what we're going to talk about today is persistent pain in these athletes. And I know this is something that you're seeing more and more of. So let's dive in. What? Let's talk about, as physical therapists or physiotherapists, do you feel that we're acknowledging these types of persistent pain in our athletes or in our runners? Or are we just thinking, oh, well, you know, they have this tendinopathy or this strain, and it's just keeps recurring. It's just like, uh, it gets better and then becomes an acute injury again, or this back pain. Oh, same thing. It, it kind of goes away and comes back. So what, what is your opinion on that? Are we acknowledging persistent pain in these athletic populations?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I think maybe we do, we do look at it a bit more like you're saying. We just kind of see it as a sort of repeated acute injury maybe rather than seeing it as a persistent pain problem. And I think that's because in part when we see people with persistent pain, part of our, of our advice and our management is for them to be active. So if you've got someone to come see seeing you that is actually already sporty, they're already active, um, That you, know, you kind of think, well, what, what else needs to be offered here? And, and I think sometimes we don't really think about the sort of psychosocial factors in sporty or active people um, because they're not obviously fear avoidant, um, especially if they're keeping their sport going. So we, we tend to go down the, the route that's perhaps a bit more biomedical, isn't it? We look at biomechanics, we look at strength and conditioning, and these all can be valuable, but we, we mustn't lose sight of the bigger picture Um, And actually I think sometimes we do need to acknowledge that it is more of a persistent pain state and and not necessarily a series of flare ups of of acute injury.
0: How do we differentiate this is persistent pain versus a series of acute flare ups?
1: Yeah, I think there's gonna be an overlap uh, between those things um, we know that people with, with persistent pain that isn't necessarily stable which can change quite a lot people go through periods of quite severe flare-ups as well I think it's about sort of looking at the bigger picture um, and looking at the connection between things like uh, pain and load so in, a, in an acute uh, injury situation um, with something like tendinopathy quite often there is quite a clear load pain relationship it hurts when I load it It doesn't hurt when I don't. Um, In a more persistent pain state, we might actually see that that um, relationship becomes a lot more blurry, that the, the pain may well flare up when load hasn't changed or the pain may remain present when there isn't a great deal of loading going on. So we start to see a bit of a breakdown of that connection between load and pain. And perhaps you start to see other aspects influencing symptoms, you know, lack of sleep, stress, fear, et cetera. We see other sort of types of behavior creeping in uh, as well around maybe avoidance coming in. So now they are backing away from their sport. So I think that's something we need to have a look out for, uh, particularly that lack of relationship between load and pain and then exaggerated pain response uh, as well.
0: And when we're looking at these more sporty, athletic people our runners, uh, how do they differentiate from say maybe our non-sporty or non-running population? <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think there there will be some definitely some you know some crossover between different people in different groups and and I really would you know I use the term athlete but I I have a really broad definition of that someone someone who wants to be regularly sporty and active fits that category for me so um, I'm not necessarily when I say athlete referring to an elite athlete competing at high level this this can be people that want to be running three or four times a week that really comes in that category too um, but. I think they can have, you know, similar concerns to, to someone that's not sporty around uh, pain and damage, for example. So they might have similar concerns there. They might both have quite high uh, life load, uh, which is a, a term I quite like that somebody mentioned in one of my courses recently. So, you know, this is where you've got lots of stress going on with, with work and family life, um, this kind of high life load that plays a part in your pain. And they may also both groups have poor recovery. So, you know, athletes um, may not be brilliant sleepers. Uh, Non-athletes may not be brilliant sleepers too. They might not get much downtime, uh, much emotional recovery. So there can be quite a lot of, um, of overlap. I think perhaps where they differ is they may have quite different goals. So um, athletes I see might, might um, want to, to go back to running uh, half marathons, marathons, ultra marathons and beyond potentially. So that might be quite a different goal to non-athletes that want to be more um, functional with day-to-day activities or, or lower level activities, perhaps like, you know, walking distances. And perhaps something that we do see in athletes that can be different, although again, we see this in non-athletes too, is they may be a bit more inclined to push through pain Um, most of us that have done sport at any level will know that pain is quite often a normal part of sport and to some degree we do have to work with it if if we stopped every time something hurt we we'd never really really do sport for very long but this isn't necessarily always the right approach gritting your teeth and pushing on through isn't always the right answer and and it's not always obvious that that's the case. But sometimes actually we do need to know when we need to back off a little bit. Um, and, and athletes, particularly really highly driven athletes, may not be quite so good at recognizing when they need to back off.
0: Yeah, that's for sure. Especially if, like you said, they've got this goal of I want to run a half marathon, a marathon or an ultra. To be able to, to have to abandon that goal due to pain, persistent pain or injury is, can be very devastating. Right. So how do you how do you navigate that with your athletes and with your runners, especially with uh, more persistent pain? How do you navigate that? um, Very, I would say, very sensitive uh, goal or topic with these with these runners or athletes.
1: Yeah, it's not. It's certainly not easy. I think it's. Uh, it, it can be challenging. I think wherever possible, we want to try and invite them to review their expectations and goals, um, so that it's not necessarily us being prescriptive and saying, this isn't realistic, or you're not going to achieve this. But if we can help them have slightly more fluid expectations of themselves and slightly more realistic goals, the ideal world then is that they then come round to the idea that perhaps this marathon they've got on the horizon, if it's not realistic for them, that they can set a, you know, a different goal with it. Um, and th- this is one of the things. Again, sometimes with with higher level athletes, certain personality types is that being being able to persist is a good skill, a good, um, a good thing to have, you know, and you need it when you get to sort of mile 18, 19 in the marathon and your legs are heavy and, you know, you've got to keep going to hit your target time. You need that in the tank. You've got to have that level of persistence and and for that to be at least a little bit rigid because you, you've got to, if you're going to achieve that goal, you've got to keep going, you've got to keep going at a certain time. So at times that rigid persistence is useful, but if you apply that, all the time when circumstances are changing, and your expectations are rigid, it doesn't really work very well. So, for example, with the situations changed, you're now in quite a lot of pain. You're struggling with day-to-day activity. Um, this marathon is, is a lot closer now than, than we would would like it to be, ideally. We have to try and encourage them to be a bit more fluid there and say, okay, well, perhaps what we need to do is change that goal a little bit. Let's push it a little bit further down the line, Let's give ourselves a bit more time, and helping them see the positives of that decision can help. So, you, I'll often say, say to them well you know if we can if we can move this you know a few months down the line or or let's go for a half marathon or a 10k it's going to take the pressure off you you're not going to feel like you're constantly chasing your tail because you're trying to catch up with the training you're not able to do you're going to be able to focus on on the rehab side of things you're not going to feel so much pressure and we can really focus on getting you well and ready to race rather than rushing you to get through a particular event when you've got a whole life of running ahead of you
0: fair very fair and and i think that's great for clinicians to hear because i think that wording it's very sensitive to the to your patient and also gives them the goal gives them that aspirational goal that they can eventually get to so i think that wording was great thank you for that now here's a tough question and and i don't know all the answers to this one but in your opinion and in your experience What do you feel may be driving persistent pain in these runners or athletes?
1: Oh yeah, that's a, that's a good question, isn't it? A million dollar question. And, and I would mm-hmm. acknowledge, I don't, I certainly don't have all the answers uh, with this. And I don't think the research does yet either, because it's an area, you know, um, persistent pain in athletes isn't brilliantly well researched. Um, so I think there's a lot that we can, we can learn about this, but there's a few things that would, I would think would spring to mind here. So I think beliefs are important. So, um, and this is can be beliefs around what the pain means Um, And then uh, what they, you know, what the pain means is if it's it's a sign of damage, uh, if they think it means they need to stop their exercise altogether, how they feel their body's going to respond to exercise when they have pain, That continuing to run, for example, will that be more harmful for them? Um, It can be around beliefs around training too. Um, A lot of people will feel that unless they're pushing themselves 100% in every session, it's not worth doing. So that can be quite difficult then for them to pace themselves and modify their training because they're kind of all or nothing, really. Um, I think one of the things I'm realizing more and more over the years working with, with people and athletes is if they are quite heavily reliant on the sport for their mental well-being, then that can have a bigger impact too uh, because they might be using that, that sport to help them with their mood or anxiety or depression. So if they can't do their sport, it increases the impact of the injury. And I think it increases the fear associated with that because they're, they're losing this coping strategy. They're losing physical fitness. They start to worry about the future. And I think maybe that links in with pain science because it increases the threat that this injury has, and that has the potential then to have a knock-on effect in terms of the pain and increasing pain severity and things. And a lot of these things are, are interlinked, I think. Training behaviors go hand-in-hand go hand with that, you know, tending to push yourself hard all the time, boom or bust, things like that. I think there's also a lot of stuff that um, we might not necessarily always see, like negative messages from others. So um, other other athletes sometimes, coaches, health professionals unfortunately. Um, so sometimes we can be responsible for that. If uh, I've treated lots of runners who've been told that they they should never run again, for example, by various different health uh, professionals. Um, so we need to be aware of that. Um, I think Google might have a lot to answer for. Um, I don't, I'd love to know.
0: I think you mean Dr. Google.
1: Dr. Google. Exactly. I don't, I don't know many situations where someone's been worried about something and put it into Google and felt better. (laughs) (laughs) generally what you find is the worst case scenario from it, which does amplify, you know, does amplify people's worries. And that's actually something as a clinician, I would check in with your patients about what what do you do when you're worried about this? Do Do you go and Google it? What do you find when you Google it? How does it make you feel? Because quite often they'll find the worst case scenario and they'll feel a lot more worried. So we want to discourage them from, from doing that. Come to us. If you've got questions about your care, that's what we're there for really. Um, So there's a lot of things there. also impact of the injury, perhaps not being fully addressed. So, um, you know, looking beyond the the kind of physical impact of the injury, but the loss of the social side of the sport, the loss of their identity around sport, um, the effects, as we said, it might have on mental health. There's lots of other things that go alongside the injury that often don't get talked about. And if they're not addressed, I think they can amplify it as well. And then the final thought I would add to this is, is perhaps they've not had really particularly appropriate rehab. Um, it may be that it's been very focused on pain um, and not really focused on function. It may be that it's not been progressive um, and it's not really looked to address their rehab needs. Lots of stretching and foam rolling and, you know, ice and but no real kind of planning and progression in there as well.
0: Okay. So that leads me to the next question. As clinicians, where should we be focusing our treatments? Good segue there.
1: Yeah. I, I like the connection. You've, you've done this before, I think. Yeah. A couple of times. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think I think it's got to start in the first session with trying to develop an understanding for that person if we can help them to to understand their injury um, and it takes time to build on that but really make that part of that first session and and give them the opportunity to share their story in that first session and also to air their concerns Um, you know i I really think we want to make the focus of these treatment sessions on on the patient and their needs not necessarily a a kind of a, a list of things we need to tick off to do in a session um, because there is actually research showing that quite often people's needs aren't really identified. Um, we can be quite dismissive as clinicians. So we want to get in there right in the early early stages and say, you know, what would you really like to, to get from from your treatment? What are your concerns? What, what are you particularly you know worried about here? What would you really like us to help with? Because if we can start with that. I think that helps us form a good, strong connection. We can really help them understand the injury and build on it from there. And um, I think that alongside um, shared goal setting, I think big pa- plan of um, a big fan of uh, collaborative working, uh, you know, so you're working towards their goals. How can we help them achieve those goals together? And again, get a good idea of those in the first sessions. And it's part of the reason I really love working with runners is because many of them have a goal, um, even if it's just they want to get back to running 5k. You know, great, brilliant. It's a measurable goal. We can start the planning towards that pretty much from from session one, um, and then we do want to have some progressive rehab because there are going to be psychosocial factors in many cases that we've talked about. You know, beliefs to address, perhaps poor recovery, um, load management to talk about. But quite often there are physical needs as well, so we need to address those if there's a lack of strength or control or range, and address them in a progressive way as opposed to just loads of stretching and rolling. And then we can start to do a graded return to sport when, when they feel like they're physically and psychologically ready to engage in that.
0: And what are some, some examples that maybe you can give of the types of diagnoses or the types of patients that you're seeing coming to you with persistent pain? You don't have we don't have to go into, you know, the specifics of how you treat X, Y, Z. But what are some things that you might be seeing uh, in your patients coming to you with persistent pain?
1: So I I do specialize to some degree. In tendinopathy so we'll see a lot of patients with long-standing tendinopathy um, lots of patients with proximal hamstring tendinopathy because that's particularly the area i've researched in uh, but also um, achilles tendinopathy issues as well um, see people with lower back pain and hip pain as well falling into this category uh, people with persistent patellofemoral pain uh, syndrome uh, persistent bone stress injuries like medial tibial stress syndrome so we do see quite a, a mix and and many of those will have been treated first and foremost in quite a kind of biomedical model, um, I think.
0: Yeah. So I think I just wanted to ask, because I think it's important that uh, clinicians out there hear like, oh, wait, you can have a persistent tendinopathy problem. You know, you can have like, oh, I, I, I wasn't aware. I thought, you know, after let's say proximal hamstring after a year of rehabbing, if that kind of comes back, oh, it's probably just like a muscle strain. It's probably not that tendinopathy again, or, or not again, but a continuation of that
1: absolutely yeah and to to give you a clinical example then because we i've talked a little bit about how the connection between load and pain can be blurry about how that may we may see an exaggerated response so to give you an example of that um proximal hamstring tendinopathy um patient that uh, i've been working with um, who will you know not be able to sit for more than maybe 30 seconds um because that will really cause a flare-up in their symptoms now, we can see then there's a, that's a really exaggerated pain response. Uh, the average person sits for somewhere around six to seven hours a day. So not to be able to tolerate even 30 seconds of sitting because there's pressure around that, uh, that tendon um, is, is an exaggerated pain response. Um, and that person's pain will fluctuate not necessarily in line with load. So there'll be uh, days where her symptoms are much worse and she doesn't really know why. It's not because she's run a long distance um, or done anything different. The fluctuations in activity levels might be small in the range of a few minutes here and there, and yet the pain response is really exaggerated. Um, And again, I talked about sort of beliefs and things going into, you know, going to this area. And when we talk to this particular person about her beliefs, you can see she's very concerned that sitting damages the tendon. um, And therefore, that adds to the threat value associated with sitting. Um, She's very fearful of sitting when you ask her to do it. You can see she's really reluctant. But also, we need to acknowledge why. It really hurts, it's really hurt for a long time. So we, there should be no judgment on our part. We should be recognizing, yeah, this is really difficult. This is having a huge impact on this person's life. If you can't sit down even to have a cup of tea or to watch a movie at the end of a long day, or to eat your dinner, like that's big. So I think we have to recognize that as a persistent pain picture and with aspects of tendinopathy in there that we can manage. But just seeing it, like you say, as, oh, it's just another flare up of the proximal hamstring tendon. We're missing that bigger picture, I'd say.
0: Yeah. And that was a great example. Thanks for that. And now, you know, when we talk about runners, we talk about athletes. So one thing they all want to do is they want to return to their sport. So can you talk to us a little bit about how we navigate that, how we prepare these people to return to their sport and what that what that sport may look like?
1: Yeah, I think I think maybe we, we start if we can by seeing if we can reduce irritability a bit where possible. Um, so if we think back to that lady I was, I was talking about, very irritable symptoms at the moment. So if I go straight into a graded return to running, I think that's probably going to be a little bit too much to start with. So in, in many situations, we may we may say, okay, let's see what we can do to reduce the symptoms and the irritability. Um, helping someone understand their pain and that it's not a sign of damage can help. Helping them uh, work out a list of things that may help to reduce their pain, um, maybe particular exercises that, that help, simple things like, you know, using heat or ice if necessary, but trying to give them strategies and work with them so they've got a little bit of a list of things that can turn that that pain volume down a little bit. And we're placing them in a bit more control, reducing that threat value. And then we can start to work towards that graded return to sport. And again, if we want to plan together, uh, because we really want the person to be in the driving seat and and us maybe just helping, you know, being a bit of a sat-nav along the way to keep them on track – um, so we've had this recently really lovely, uh, runner I've been working with, um, who in the first session said to me, um, you know, what she'd like to do is first of all, build some strength, um, then increase her cardio fitness by bringing in a bit of cycling and swimming. Then she wanted to bring in some, some impact and some plyometric exercises before doing a graded return to running. And I thought immediately, brilliant. This is, this is fantastic. This Where- person has a great plan. Where'd you, did you, know? you
0: find this woman? That's yeah.
1: Yeah, I know. Wonderful, wonderful. And this this is someone with a lot of experience in sport, who's also studied uh, sports science, so knows the topic really well. But that's a fantastic plan. Let's go with that plan um, and just help the person with their plan there. Um, so, And we might follow quite a similar plan to that for, for patients. You know, we try and calm things down where we can. We build some strength to try and address some of their physical needs. We bring in some cardiovascular exercise to build some fitness up. We start to introduce impact because it can build impact tolerance, but it also is often a um, a way of developing some power. So perhaps some plyometric exercises to restore power, which is often neglected in rehab. And then we start to to do a graded return to to running. Um, And that's then where we've got to try and work with them around their goals and also work with them around pain. Uh, And that can be a bit of a barrier.
0: Yeah, and so how much pain is acceptable? How much is too much? And on that note, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor and be right back. On Tuesday, March 16th, which is tomorrow. As part of NetHealth's three-part mini webinar series, they'll be discussing how to financially recover from 2020 with digital marketing. You're going to hear from a panel of guests that have over 25 years of combined experience working in the healthcare industry. Head over to nethealth.com slash litzy to sign up. And as a bonus, If you put Litzy in the comments section on the registration page, sign up and show up, we've arranged for NetHealth to buy lunch for your office. Once again, that's nethealth.com forward slash L-I-T-Z-Y.
1: Yeah, I mean, we like our pain scales, um, uh, you know, sort of scoring pain out of 10. And I, I would say there's actually quite a few studies that have done that quite successfully. So I think there's some value in that. But what we've talked about with these pain groups is that the connection between load and pain isn't very clear and the pain response is exaggerated. So if we're guided purely by pain, we are gonna struggle a little bit, I would say with these patients. So I would tend to say that the patient needs to decide what they feel is acceptable and we provide some some guidance Um, and we need to try and if we can look at longer term trends. Um, Now, patients quite understandably might get very focused on day to day pain fluctuations, but it's actually more the long term trends in pain over the over the weeks and months that we're a little bit more interested in. Um, And we also perhaps need to recognize that that there are almost two slightly separate goals here, improving function and improving pain. If you're seeing improvements in function and pain hasn't changed, that's still a win because you're doing more. In fact, that's quite a good win because you're doing more and your pain hasn't got worse. But patients often won't see that as a win because understandably they may want that pain to go away, but we can often focus first of all say, okay, well, let's, Start with what you feel is a manageable level of exercise. Let's work with it consistently, first of all, and then gradually build as long as you feel the pain is is an acceptable level. And sometimes what we tend to see then is over time, they're able to do more and more. And then gradually that pain does subside because they're able to do more. They're more confident. They're starting to get their life back. The threat value of the pain is starting to go down, but that takes quite a long time. So I think quite often, wherever possible, place the focus a bit more on function and just say to the patient, if you feel, feel that it's manageable, it's acceptable, this is fine. If it's too much, if it's not manageable, we'll dial it down a little bit. But we want, if we can, to stay consistent with the exercise, because otherwise we're going to have a lot of boom and bust here. We'll build you up and stop, build you up and stop. We want to just see, can we keep you ticking along, even if it's at quite a low level?
0: And do you have your patients keep a log or a journal or some way so that they can see, oh, I was doing this. I started with Tom on March 1st and here it's April 1st. And this is what I was able to do March. Now this is what I can do in April. My pains are on the same, but look at how much more I can do. Or maybe my pain's a little less. Or do you? how do you keep track of all that? Do you give that to the patient to help them with their own sort of locus of control? And are you using the pain scale? Are you saying, well, what is your pain? March 1st, let's compare that to, or April 1st, let's compare that to March 1st.
1: Yeah, I would try and see if we can um, monitor their goal activity because it's important to be able to see that they're improving, they're progressing towards their goal. If you've got quite a specific goal, like running a 5k, in order to get there, you've, you've got to see, you know, how how far you're able to run, and that's the simplest question. Of how far can you run now? You know, um, but that can be um, it. Could be steps per day if someone's wanting to build up their walking. It could be minutes rather than miles with any activity really. So I think it's a good idea to try and and monitor what people are doing. Um, I do I do use the pain scale a little bit. Um, it depends on on how comfortable the person is with it whether they like using that Um, i tend to perhaps make it a little bit more simple and just say is your pain mild moderate or severe sort of break it down into those um into those three sort of different categories really Um, um but the thing is with pain is there's some different aspects of it are we talking about average pain day to day Um, we're talking about peak pain what does the pain get up to as it's at its highest we're talking about pain frequency so how often you've had that pain during the day are we talking about pain distress which i think is almost a separate thing how distressing are you finding that pain so if you're especially worried about it that pain often will be more distressing even if the severity isn't necessarily higher. Do you see what I mean? So I think, I think where possible we focus on the goal function um, and we we try and take that focus off pain a little bit. Uh, because as well, you know, if patients are monitoring it every day, they're drawing that focus on pain every day. And they're asking ourselves, how much does it hurt? Um, even some patients have uh, you know one used the term morning MRI he used to get up in the morning and do a, do a sort of stretching test on his achilles That's what he called his morning MRI to test the Achilles out and see how he thought it would be that day. We don't really want to do that to be honest we want to focus on what what your valued activities let's really try and bring them back in build those up and keep a kind of little casual, casual notice of, of pain. Let pain tell us if it's too much, if it's breaking through into your attention and in telling you it's too much, that's probably when we need to act. If you're looking for it, if you're, if you're kind of really questioning, is it worse today? I'm, I'm less concerned about it.
0: Got it. Yeah. So you don't want them to, you don't want your patients to be waking up and be like, wait, do I feel, do I feel more pain today? Wait. You're, you're well aware that you have pain.
1: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I, th- I think that kind of focusing on the pain as well, it's quite, it's quite no- a normal thing to do. I think mm-hmm. we've kind of pathologized it a little bit. Um, but I think actually it's, it's understandable for people to do that, especially if there's another layer of context around the pain and what it might mean and what that might mean for your, for your future. Um, so if I I'll give you an example from myself, so I have, uh, I have psoriasis and I have uh, nail bed changes with psoriasis and that increases the the likelihood of you uh, developing psoriatic arthritis. So a couple of weeks ago, I'm surfing on Twitter and someone posts a, a link to a research paper that, that says new study shows link between nail bed changes and severity of psoriatic arthritis. And I start thinking, yeah, my fingers are a bit sore today. You know, that's one of the areas where you can get psoriatic arthritis changes in the the joints and the fingers. And then that thought comes back a little bit later that day and for a few more days afterwards. And now I'm sort of noticing like achy thumbs, hands are a bit stiff in the morning. And if I allow myself to keep focusing on that and measuring that and worrying about that, it would be understandable that that could become really quite a worry for me because then you think well is it psoriatic arthritis that's been that's known to actually affect the joint and perhaps even damage the joint and if i've got nail bed changes that means it's going to be very severe and what impact will that have on my life and these are all just normal things that we have as as people as health professionals that know quite a bit about pain so I think we can acknowledge for someone who's not a health professional, there's probably a lot of that going on. Particularly if the pain's been there a long time, and pain is it's is a real nuisance because it can you can kind of like stop worrying about it, and then it then you have the pain, and it kind of reminds you and goes, "Hello, I I've not forgotten about you," and that can start that whole worrying process over again. So it is hard and. I think sometimes as health professionals, we think like, well, I talked to them about their pain and I reassured them that pain isn't damaged. Tick. But that, if you think that that is enough to wipe out that concern. You I are wrong. We are wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we may need to be consistent with that message several times. And we, we might need to encounter that worry coming up several times and to try and help someone contextualize their symptoms and to see not what they're fearing, but what really is going on. Um, And to look at a bit the now of how symptoms are. So with my hands, you know, I don't have any of the classic signs of psoriatic arthritis. I don't have swelling. I don't have a loss of joint range. Um, I've actually been tested for a psoriatic arthritis and it was negative. So it was trying to contextualize it and see the reality is I've just turned 40 and I've got slightly stiff fingers. That's the reality. So let's focus on the now and what is real for you now and not what you fear might be coming up in in the future.
0: Yeah, and that's something that I say to myself every time I wake up and my neck's a little stiffer sore, you know, my upper back feels a little sore, instead of my what I used to do is uh-oh, okay, I better not go to work today. I better just relax. Let me get a heating pad. Let me just I don't want to do anything. I should probably just lay d- and these are all the things I used to do. And so now when I wake up or if I do have a flare up of neck pain or something like that, now I'll just say, okay, I know nothing is seriously damaged. I have the MRIs to prove it, multiple. And, you know, these are just things that I have to continually say to myself. And I think I'm pretty well-versed in, in the science behind pain and, and even working with people with persistent pain. I mean, I do it every day. But even for myself, I have to continuously sort of recite these mantras to myself in order for me to get through the day when I have a little bit more discomfort or pain. So the struggle is there, you know, and I think imparting that and and telling that to your patients, especially your your runners with persistent pain, um, I think that can be very powerful.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and recognizing, as I said, the bigger picture of knowing the person um, and, and the things that make, them, make up them as a person. And if they are, for example, running for their mental well-being, what, what, what is the, the thing that they're, they're running to help? Um, and how does that link to their pain? Are they running to help anxiety? In which case, are they someone who is, is perhaps going to struggle with negative thoughts about pain? And they're going to be drawn into ruminating about those negative thoughts about pain. And they're going to be looking for reassurance for those thoughts, you know, jumping on Dr. Google and finding actually it makes it worse because they see all the negative outcomes they're afraid of laid out on a web page. So if they are someone with that with that, then they, they may need more, more help with that. They may need to, you know, you may need to work with a mental health professional to help them work with those thoughts and to find ways. Uh, perhaps to not get drawn into that ruminating pattern and to look for other coping strategies, which ultimately long term can be useful because they're less reliant then upon the sport because they actually learn perhaps a slightly different relationship with their, with their thoughts. And from that, then can help their, their mental well being.
0: Yes, I, I agree with that. And now, listen, before we kind of wrap things up, Um, is there, uh, anything that we missed or that maybe we flew by a little too quickly that you want to, uh, elaborate on? And if not, what would be your best advice to a clinician that is working with, that is working with people with, uh, or athletes with persistent pain problems?
1: Um I think in terms of things we might have missed, I just would say that there's a there's a nice paper uh, from Hainlein at all in two thousand and seventeen uh, that's well worth a look, which is is actually looking at things a little bit more in terms of pain in athletes. and there's there's quite a nice um, quote in that um, that I'll just briefly read now if that's okay. so they they say even low level inflammation, for example, linked to sleep deprivation, ongoing stress, and load exceeding the tissue's capacity can reduce the athlete's mechanical nociceptive threshold sufficiently to make normal mechanical demands of sport painful. So that sort of linking into this bigger picture stuff saying here, actually, if we're not recovering enough, or the load is excessive on the tissues, it's actually going to have an effect potentially on sensitivity, um, no susceptive threshold. So this is where it's quite important for us to see the bigger picture. They also say in that paper that the the link between tissue change um, and pain is thought to reduce over time. So if you've got someone with very persistent symptoms, years worth of pain, you should already perhaps be suspecting that this is probably not just going to be driven by the tissues i mean when is there ever a situation where pain is but you know it's probably going to be a bigger picture here that we need to identify and i think that's probably one of the, the key messages to take from what we've talked about here really you know you, you start off right with the first question is perhaps just to, to try and see if you can recognize when you are looking at a more persistent pain state and to try and really get to know that person and the bigger picture and what's driving that because then I think you're going to get better results with them. And then try and see if we can work gradually towards their goals and just keep them on track with it and give it time. It will take time. You know, this the patients I'm seeing, we're looking at at least six months, probably a year of working together because there's so much to work through. I think we sometimes think, oh, we reassure them about their pain, give them some exercises away. They go. It's not really like that. You know, it's going to be lots of ups and downs. We're going to have to stick with them for a while and just keep chipping away. But you can get some really good results with people. You, know, you can get them back to the sport that they that they love. And that can be a really, really big thing for them.
0: Yeah, uh, that's a, a great way to uh, to end our conversation here. Um, one one question: What was the who's the author of the paper from two thousand
1: seventeen? I think it's Heinlein et al. Okay, um, I believe that was in the BGSM, uh, but I can uh, find a link to it for you to put in the in the show notes if you'd like.
0: Perfect, that would be great, and I I will look it up as well. Um, but thank you for that. And um, now before we finish our conversation, where can people find you if they have questions?
1: Yeah. Come and say hello on, uh, on Twitter. I'm at Tom Goom or on Instagram, uh, at running.physio. Um, also I've got my website, which is running-physio.com. So yeah, come and say hello, ask questions and things. It's always good to, to chat.
0: Perfect. And last question, what advice would you give to your younger self knowing where you are now? And I know we've, you said this before, so now you have to say something different. Now you get a chance to give yourself a second piece of advice.
1: Oh, good question. Oh, I, I, now that I'm 40 and thinning a bit on top, I'd, I'd say really enjoy your hair while it's there. <laughs> that would probably be it. Um, yeah, um, no, I don't know. In, in, in all seriousness, I think I would probably sort of say, um, you know, really make sure that you kind of value value the things that are important in life friends and the family you know always always try and put those things first because ultimately they're they're the things that are most important for us and i think a lot of people are really you know know that and have learned it especially during covid but i think there's a lot to be said about you know focusing on on family and friends and things first Uh, and you can still have a very fulfilling career and things but i think that that's the important the important stuff that's what makes makes life great really
0: excellent advice well tom thank you so much for coming onto the podcast again and sharing all this great information with us i really appreciate your time
1: thanks for having me back Karen. it's been really good
0: pleasure pleasure and everyone thank you so much for listening have a great week and stay healthy wealthy and smart Again, a big thanks to Tom Goom for coming on the podcast again, and of course, a big thanks to NetHealth. So if you want to find out how to financially recover from 2020 using digital marketing tomorrow, March 16th, be uh, be a part of NetHealth's three-part mini webinar series. Head over to nethealth.com slash to sign up. And again, as a bonus, if you put Litzy in the comment section on the registration page, Sign up and show up. We've arranged for NetHealth to buy lunch for you and your office. Once again, that's nethealth.com forward slash L-I-T-Z-Y. Thank you for listening and please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.